So yeah, people have been talking uh, all year about Scary Boys, Scaring Boys. They can't wait for these episodes. So we can't do these these goofy, goofy things we've been doing on these first 44 episodes. We have to really bring it now. It's episode 45, first show of the new show. People are excited. I have an awesome catchphrase. You're going to love it. I'm ready. All right, let's get into it. Pizza, pizza. Welcome to episode 45 of Scary Boys, Scaring Boys, an in-depth and very serious exploration into the world of horror films hosted by two guys who've seen them all. I'm your host, Clever Villain, and allow me to introduce my co-host. It's Batum Cervantes Batner. Do you get it? No. Um, well, because it's October and we're doing the scary version of the uh. show. Instead of Adam Cervantes Wagner, your Batum Cervantes didn't have a pun for that. And then Wagner, I made it into Batner. So you couldn't get Scervantes. <laughs> it was right there. Yeah. Uh, I love that you think that I actually used two brain cells on thinking of a pun <laughs> for your dumb name. Your uh your 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 fake showbiz name. <laughs> And, and by the way, I want to welcome our listeners and let them know that when you're here, you're scary. Yeah, that's the catchphrase for Scary Boys, Scary Boys. What do you think about my name, Clever Villain? Uh, you've mentioned it on the show before. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, past guest on the show from our Swordfish episode, Making Cheese. He um, he called me Clever Villain very, very early on. Not not really a spooky name as much as just a okay pun. <laughs> it's pretty good, I think. I like that name a lot. Yeah, my uh, my name on Twitter right now is uh, Trevor Dillon, and then in parentheses it says in October. <laughs> uh, and you know, you were right in saying that I don't roast you enough for Captain Dills, but I think it may just because I want you to get back into the video game world. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah, I'm tra- at Trevor Dills on my social media, but I'm Captain Dills on Letterbox because I made a Letterbox a really long time ago, like probably right when it like started. I don't know, in, like 2011. And I would have been playing, like, Counter-Strike in, like, World of Warcraft back then. So my name was Captain Dills. Uh, you know, because we have new listeners to the show. They don't know my gaming background. Right. And we, we, we're going to get you more into gaming at some point, I promise. Hey, I wasn't planning on talking about this, and we're going to get to our awesome guest in a second. But uh, speaking of gaming, did you happen to see the Resident Evil trailer that came out today for the new movie? I didn't. Tell me okay. about it. I've got to tell you about it. It's almost better that you didn't see it because okay. uh, my big complaint about the Resident Evil franchise that I've espoused on this show, uh, like I've said, we've already done 44 episodes of this thing, um, is that the movies, the Paul Anderson movies, not Paul Thomas Anderson, but Paul W.S. Anderson's movies, uh, I love Mila Jovovich, I, it just, but they're not like the video games at all. And like growing up, I really truly didn't play that many video games, but the ones that I did play were like literally like Resident Evil, Dino Crisis, Dead Space, like very similar horror-based uh, video games. And this trailer, like 
wasn't good. It wasn't great. And I'm not super excited, but it had two shots that were actually directly like from the game, like references to the game. And now I know how it feels like to be pandered to as like a video game fan watching a video game movie. So I'm like, 100%, I have to go see this movie because I've been complaining for so long that they don't make the movies like the video games. So I'm actually, I'm really stoked about it. Did you ever play the Resident Evil video games? Uh, I played Resident Evil 2, but the remaster of it. So I never got into the like angly stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like the first one is what this one's based off of. And it's like just basically like the raccoon city police department goes to a house in the middle of the woods and there's just zombies in it. And I'm like, yes, this is what this movie should be. Like it should be Mm -hmm. like the video games, but yeah, resident evil four is one of my favorite movies of all time. And when the seventh one, the new one comes out, I think it's called village. Uh, I'm going to find a friend of mine who has a video game system because I don't have one and I'm going to watch them play it. Like, like to me, it's like as good as watching a good movie. This is, this is very cute, Trevor. First of all, village is the eighth one and second of all it came out in may or march are you telling me that vill oh my god it totally already came out because it had the big lady huh yeah that's why you know about it god damn it the village already came out i missed my chance to uh bond with someone by watching them play a video game i'd be down i'd be down maybe we uh, maybe we get that into like a patreon thing yeah, damn it. You you're right. That was cute of me to I actually really didn't know. Damn it. I feel I sound so stupid right now. <laughs> anyway, um uh w- w- what's up with you? I mean, I know we're doing a lot of talking at the beginning of the show, but uh usually we just uh flounder and get the guest in as soon as we can, <laughs> but uh any cool movie news that you heard about today that you liked? Um yeah, well actually if we can go back to a second to you said the pandering stuff. I'm a big Sopranos boy, so you know, I I recently watched the Many Saints of Newark, mm. which is getting pretty mixed to sort of like down reviews. Yeah, yeah. as someone who's never seen a single episode of The Sopranos, and we will remedy this again. Maybe it'll be a Patreon thing, but uh, I it looked really, really bad, like, like the movie itself. Right. I actually didn't. I liked it. You know, I didn't think it was so bad. There were some moments in it, but it's hard for me to judge it as a movie because I was just enjoying seeing like the characters all young and doing stuff. And the stupidest thing happens at the end that I, that, so basically, you know, we end on a shot of young Tony Soprano and you, the, the theme music from the show starts to fade in. Right. And it's so dumb and I loved it so much. <laughs> Pandering can be good. <laughs> yeah. I was totally about it. I would watch more of that movie if there was it for sure. Well, hey, listen, you're the demographic who's going to enjoy that movie. So sometimes fan service isn't bad. Like they made that movie for a very specific group of people. Uh, I will never watch that movie unless I watch The Sopranos. So um, who are the, you know, they're not, if I watch it and I complain that it's bad, like my opinion is completely invalid on something like that. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is I, I typically hate fan service. I think it ruins sort of like things like Game of Thrones. But, ah, oh God, I'm a sucker for this one. I just really liked it. <laughs> okay. Well, we can't keep talking about The Sopranos because it's not spooky enough. So um, let's stop Let's stop bullshitting here and get to our amazing guest that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a freelance writer and film journalist with work featured in The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Dead. You can catch her now on Eli Ross' History of Horror on AMC or AMC+. Plus. Please welcome back to the show, Justina Bonilla. Justina, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I mean, um, we're, we're very, very happy that you brought on this movie, uh, a movie that Adam waited till this morning to watch. Oh, my gosh. That's right. And uh, by the way, we're re-recording this episode. Hey, you don't have to tell people that. <laughs> 
Wait, I'm gonna, gonna cut, do, I'm gonna fire me. No, I'm gonna cut that shit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because how am I now? I can't use my same jokes that I'm gonna okay. use. <laughs> nice try. Okay. Way to try to roast me, baby. You can't do it. <laughs> no, um, yeah, we are re-recording this episode, and uh, Justina is. Uh, I had me. The host of the show, Clever Villain, had massive technical difficulties, so we uh, cut our last episode early, and uh, Justina is nice enough to come on to the show at 11 p.m. the night before the episode's going to come out uh, to re-record it. So thanks again, Justina. I really do appreciate that. Thank no you. problem. Just for thanks for doing this again. Yeah, so on the last episode, I just had these like crazy laggy moments, and we just kind of called it quits. We didn't quite get into it fully, which means that, no, I will not be using all of the same jokes uh, or attempted jokes in the last stuff, because as listeners of this show know, I don't write stuff down anyway. But, uh, uh, Justina, I asked you last time you were on the show what your favorite genre of cinema was when we were talking about Creature from the Black Lagoon, but mm -hmm. this is Scary Boys, Scaring Boys, so we're going to go ahead and assume that your favorite genre of cinema is horror, but to get a little deeper into that, what would you say your favorite subgenre of horror is? Okay, that's really hard because there's so many good ones, but it would I would say my top three would have to be classic horror, Latin horror, and horror documentaries. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I wanted. It's very, very specific. Uh, I know we talked about Latin horror last time. Uh, I know you're like a super expert on that. Uh, if I ever have any questions, I usually go to you on it. But uh, just just pretend that there's someone in the world who didn't listen to that first episode you were on. What are some uh, of your favorite Latin horror movies, like maybe something that you grew up watching? Hmm, I guess the best – I think what we should discuss first is a definition of what Latin horror is because uh, – there's not a confirmed definition, but the way I like to look at it is horror created by Latinos or that feature Latinos in front of the camera in some significant role. So, for example, you could have a movie like From Dust Till Dawn where you have a Latino director and Latinos in front of the screen, but then it was written by Quentin Tarantino. So I would consider that Latin horror a movie like the Spanish language Dracula, which when... Uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula was released in 1931. There was a Spanish version that was made to accommodate the Spanish-speaking audience that uh, Universal didn't want to lose because of the transition from silent to sound. The so, film was directed and pretty much everybody behind the scenes were non-Latinos, but everybody in front of the screen was. So I... For me, I would say Spanish Dracula, number one, because that's pretty much, in my eyes, the birth of Latin horror right there with uh, Lupito Tovar Conner. And then, of course, like I mentioned from Dust Till Dawn, anything with, you know, Guillermo del Toro, I really do like. I consider Hostel a Latin horror movie, considering that having uh, someone like Jay Hernandez as the lead really does uh, change the dynamic of the story, especially if you're a, a Latino watching it. So I would say those are probably some of my favorite ones in uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. And there's a movie um, that's from Mexico called Bajo La Sal, which is about a string of murders that happen in a small salt mining Mexican town. And oh. it's kind of uh, built up like a film noir. You can find it online. And it's I think it's like on... Apple Plus for like two bucks, but it's like a, a film noir slash horror, and it's really gritty. Not exactly, you know, uh, Amores Perros gritty, but kind of in the same uh, time period of that. And then, of course, the one of the most important films in just Mexican horror and Latin horror would be El Vampiro, which is in 
the Mexican interpretation of Dracula. So those would probably be my favorites. That one. Oh, here's another okay. movie that I would recommend uh, for listeners. It's uh, there's one called uh, Juana the Dead, which is like a a spoof of Dawn of, the, of like a uh, Shaun of the Dead, but it's set in Cuba. And what's really funny yeah. is you have Juan. He actually makes it his job to kill zombies. So when he answers the phone, he goes, you know, Juan the Dead. You know, I kill your relatives. How can I help you? You know. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Trevor, take note, because uh, if you want to make a Latin horror movie now, just put me in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> that's all it takes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, One of the Dead, I, uh, that's uh, written and directed by Alejandro Brujo, who I had at the theater, and he is, like, so cool. I, anything that guy makes going forward, I'm super into, because we have filmmakers who come to the theater. Uh, amazing Don Coscarelli is incredible. I, I, some, I love the people who come through and are nice enough to come uh, to my theater and do Q and A's and stuff like that. But some, uh, not all of them are great, and I won't use names. But Alejandro Bourgeau is fantastic and just the nicest dude. So yeah, check out One of the Dead. And what was the other one? Was um Bajo La Sal? I've never heard uh, of that. Bajo La Sal. It's a. It came out in the early two thousands, mm. but it's one of those Mexican horror movies that really didn't make it in the U.S. It what uh, like you know the extent of Del Toro's films or what we see with yeah. Isa Lopez. But it's one of those gritty uh, horror slash crime dramas that I thoroughly enjoy as a fan of horror noir, excuse me, of horror and, uh, you know, film noir. Yeah, it sounds like the, an awesome marriage of, of stuff that uh, you're interested in, I'm interested in, and this is what people listen to the show for as recommendations. So <laughs> I, uh, while you were talking, I don't think it's rude. I added it to my letterbox watch list. So uh, very excited to check that out. Uh, so I mentioned that you're on Eli Ross' uh, History of Horror. Uh, that's on AMC and AMC Plus now. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that you are now like a horror film historian, uh, which yeah. is so incredible. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm so proud of you. I mean, you've been, you were writing for the Free to Cinema. You oh still gosh. are. And we, we can plug that at the, at the end of the episode. But uh, I, I've seen you grow mm-hmm. so quickly as a writer. Like you've, you've really, um, uh, you've written for so many awesome publications. But uh, tell us a little about, about your uh, infatuation with horror documentaries, because that's something that I haven't quite gotten into. And Lord knows Adam hasn't. This guy's a, this guy's a horror noob. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, this is actually a good introduction for people who want to learn more about horror. I have always loved film. And when I was really tiny, you know, here in the city of Orange, there's the Orange Circle and they filmed the movie That Thing You Do, the one directed by Tom Hanks. And so that when I saw it there, I actually was in the little area where they allowed locals to watch the movie being filmed. I immediately fell in love with what it takes to make a movie because at the end of the day it's like David J. Skull the uh, author and horror historian always says that there's a story behind the story what did it take to make the movie so for me as a little kid watching that thing you do being made in front of my eyes you know watching Tom Hanks directing and so forth it was a surreal experience for me and I wanted to learn more about how movies were made. So about 12, 13 years old, I started getting more into uh, documentaries because my mom got me into, there's a documentary series by Time Life called History of Rock. So it goes from the earliest era of rock into like shock rock like Alice Cooper and then contemporary horror, or contemporary music, which was, I think the series was released in the mid 90s. But that kind of engaged my interest of, war documentaries that reestablished it so 
when I started getting interested in horror, I thought, well, gosh, how did they do this? How did they do that? And these documentaries not only answered those questions, but made me more curious about uh, just film in general. Justina, you've brought on the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, uh, 1987, directed by Chuck Russell. We'll talk about Chuck Russell. We'll talk about the writer, Frank Darabont, in a moment. But uh, why this movie? Why did you bring this on to Scary Boys, Scaring Boys? Because that was the film that I talked about on History of Horror. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, very good. <laughs> the, the, the synergy, I like it. Um, so I am not super well-versed in the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, movies. I did an entire full marathon of it uh, right when we reopened the theater as a fundraiser. It was very successful. I was very proud of it. I was able to catch a couple of them. Uh, <laughs> I think the first one is a total masterpiece, like truly, like Wes Craven is like obviously like a horror god to me. But um, where would you rank this one in the full series if you if you had to put it somewhere? Okay, so I don't include the new remake. Uh, I don't include that one. So (laughs) I do include uh, Freddy vs. Jason, and that was actually the first Freddy movie that I saw in the theater. Me too. So it, all right. So number one will always be the first one. That's the one that opened the floodgates, or in this case, the blood gates. So then I would go with number three. So that would be second for sure, and probably... Uh, a new nightmare or a new nightmare would be third because mm-hmm. I like how it basically I, I guess the best way to describe it is how it took the concept of the story and said it does you know the nightmare didn't stay in the film that it is actually real it brought it to the real world so I like that kind of concept and then I would go with the second one uh, Freddy versus Jason those would probably be my top ones Nice. It's a solid top five for sure. I, your top three are the exact same as mine. Uh, so Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, now, part three, I can officially say, is my second favorite. And then my third is New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare is, of course, of my top three are as basic as possible in terms of, like, they all have that Wes Craven touch to them, whether he wrote or directed or, you know, like his, his, his what do you, I was going to say his paw prints, Adam. Wes Craven, I was going to call, uh, our dearly departed Wes Craven, I almost said was a dog. <laughs> Uh, you're a dog, Trevor. <laughs> I know. We're almost <laughs> saying that. Terrible. Uh, yeah, his uh, fingerprints are all over the three that I really like. And then um, I, you guys have already heard me say this, but uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 always has a special place in my heart because I went and saw it with uh, the director, Rennie Harlan, doing a Q&A. And um, before oh, we wow. get into it, I, I want to tell you an aside that he said that really blew my mind. But back in 1988, uh, post-Dream Warriors, uh, Rennie Harlan came over. Uh, from that European country he's famously from. Uh, I don't know what it is. I forgot what it was. Uh, let's say Germany. <laughs> and he drove by the now TCL Chinese Theater, and he saw the line around the block for the opening night of Dream Warriors. And he said to the guy that he was in the car with, he just straight up told him, I'm going to direct the fourth Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Uh, and then he apparently went into like an office at New Line Cinema like a week later, and he was a big music video director, so he just pitched the movie as these are going to be the five dream sequences. I have a very distinct style for all five of them. What do you think? And then next thing he knows, he's directing the fourth movie. And that's like, that's like I can't believe like Hollywood used to be like that. Like It's like this very exciting new frontier. Um, Adam, do you know what they used to call New Line Cinema before it was known for Lord of the Rings and stuff like that? Trevor, this would be a great time to flex my knowledge uh, from our last 
uh, error-filled episode, however. You don't uh, remember. I, you don't, don't remember. remember. Yeah. <laughs> I don't pay attention when you talk. <laughs> they called it the house that Freddy built because New Line Cinema would just drop a Freddy movie anytime they needed to make money. I mean, it was just a huge, huge moneymaker for them. Uh, so, Adam, explain to the listeners what your past is with the Nightmare on Elm Street um, cinematic universe. Yeah, haven't seen any of them before this morning again. <laughs> um, today was my first foray into it. I watched it with a friend of mine. It was also her first foray. Uh, we watched it in the morning. Uh, where the sun was shining, birds were chirping, there was a rainbow outside. Um, <laughs> it's just an odd time to be watching this movie. Freddy and pancakes, that works. Yeah. <laughs> F and P, I call it every morning, but um, I, 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 uh, do we want to get into it or what? Sure, let's get into it. Um, of course, we need to talk about the director of the movie uh, because we're weird like that. Uh, this movie was, I already mentioned it was made in 1987, but directed by Chuck Russell. Have you ever heard of Chuck Russell, Adam? Uh, I have a friend, Russell, that I'd like to chuck, you know what I mean. <laughs> You did not deserve that laugh, but it, it got me. Uh, no, of course, Chuck Russell directed one of your favorite movies, uh, The Mask, which I know you really like. And don't make a Peter Bogdanovich joke. It is The Mask with Jim Carrey in it. All right. You know, I went on a whole tangent in the last version of this podcast. I'm going to go ahead and keep it short and say uh, spicy. <laughs> yeah, Adam went on some like weird 45-minute rant about like, some scene being like really good or scary or something like okay, that. I, the I don't set piece, the set piece of Ricky Ricardo that, that I, the I mask does this. to avoid the, the the cops, I think, is clever. It's fun. You know, it avoids confrontation the old-fashioned way with just guns blasting. And uh, Cameron Diaz, of course. Uh, but uh, Chuck Russell, you know uh, how she got, you know how she uh, got the role there because that was her first film. No, I do not. Please tell me uh, more trivia about the mask on the Nightmare on Elm Street 3 episode. Well, it's very interesting because um, she was actually, right before that film, she was in a softcore porn movie, a bondage mm -hmm. movie. Okay. And then she got this movie, and it's funny because at the end, she's bound uh, to the bomb. All right. Uh, Chuck Russell also directed The Scorpion King, which, guys, guess what? I have a story about The Scorpion King. Do you want to hear it? I can't wait. Can you tell me what the story is, Adam? I'm sure you've heard it from me multiple times. If I had to guess, it would be you and your buddy in a hotel in Vegas when you were too young to go down to the casino. Uh -huh. and you guys wanted to watch Scorpion King, so your buddy tried to order it, but for some reason it wouldn't work. Yes. So your buddy kept trying over and over again. And at the end of the trip, your dad looked on the receipt and saw, what, like 20 charges of the Scorpion <laughs> King to your room? Yeah, it was like $140 worth of Scorpion <laughs> Kings. <laughs> Uh, guess what? To this day, still not. I've I have not seen that movie. Um, You're missing out. But the one thing we didn't talk about in the last episode uh, that we tried to do of this is that um, one year later, after the Dream Warriors, Chuck Russell reteamed with Frank Darabont, which we'll talk about him writing this movie with Wes Craven. Which is like what a what a pun pun excluded from this sentence. But what a dream team! Frank Darabont and Wes Craven writing a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But they teamed. You're back missing to a name. Yeah, no, uh, we'll get to it. We'll get to the writers okay. of this movie. But, um, yeah, one year later in 1988, Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont made the remake of The Blob, which is, like, a really, really good remake. I know, Adam, you seem like a guy who would like the uh, old 50s style of the original Blob. But, Justina, have you seen the remake of The Blob? And if so, what do you think of it? 
Well, normally I'm not the biggest fan of remakes, but it was an impressive one. I tend to gravitate towards older horror pre-1970, but I did like the direction that they took it in. I did like the special effects, and it's one of those films, it's kind of like it, where it took the essence of the original, but then brought it up to date, and it does a good job. It's a good standalone film. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's very intense. Like they they took like a what's not that intense of a fifties movie at this point, right? And then we watch it, and it's like it's like Kevin Dillon on a dirt bike and Shawnee Smith from like the Saw Two and uh, people who you might notice, but it's like it's it's scary and bloody and like kind of gross. And they really updated it for like the late eighties. Is exactly I I need to look into how it did financially because it seems like it's exactly what people would have wanted at that time. Adam always makes fun of me. Uh, for obsessing over how movies do financially, but that that type of stuff it shapes the landscape. You know, I'm I'm curious how it did, but I, I won't Google it on this show. I I don't make fun of you. I think it's cool. Yeah, you think I'm cool when my yeah. my obsession with uh, box office is cool. Yeah, I think you're cool, Captain Dills. <laughs> what do you think uh, Chuck Russell's highest grossing movie is? If you had to guess, The Mask. Yeah, it's got to be The Mask. Yeah. <laughs> Just a massive huge hit. Anyways, let's talk about uh, Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so we'll we'll start there with the writers of this movie. I know story credit goes to Wes Craven. He was a producer on this. Uh, he also apparently had a, a hand in the script. But um, who, who, what name are we missing here between the writers? You have Chuck Russell, Wes Craven, Frank Darenbaugh. Is there a name that I'm not seeing, Adam? <laughs> yeah, there is. I'm curious why you're not bringing it up. Uh, is it... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll say the name. Is there a joke here or something? But the name is Bruce Wagner. Yeah, that's, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> that was your joke the whole time? That's not a joke. That's tr- true. In Wait. A, in, a, in a sense, it's that's not actually my dad. But my oh, dad's name is Bruce Wagner. Dude, dude, you just had me truly like holy shit this is the best episode of this show <laughs> uh, no i sent a picture because there's a there's a i think it might be the same writer um bruce allen wagner that you probably mm-hmm. you heard that is my exact dad's name bruce oh, allen wagner that is so weird yeah i sent him a picture of this and he said i for, i forgot that one and what's funny is my dad um is retired and gotten into writing and he can't use his own name for for the books wow well let's uh <laughs> Just for fun, I know this episode's going to be a little longer than the normal ones, but let's see what uh, other things Bruce Wagner has written, shall we? It's weird to hear that. <laughs> um, uh, the only other notable thing on here is that he apparently has a, a screenwriting credit on that weird Cronenberg movie that came out in 2014 with Pattinson and uh, Mia Wysokowska, Maps to the Stars with Julianne uh, Moore. Did you see yeah, that movie? My, my dad's a freak. Yeah, that movie sucks. <laughs> like, I'm not joking. Like, I hate that movie. It was, like, unwatchable. And I like Cronenberg. I stopped uh, watching that movie. Yeah, I was, like, watching it for... Does it get Cronenberg at some I, point? Cause it, I don't know. It, just people are insufferable in that movie. And yeah. I know that's the point, but it's, like, I, I don't need to stick around and watch this. Right. Okay, let's get back to <laughs> horror and Justina. Um, let me read the plot of this movie, and then we can just have at it, basically. I know you've been on the show before, but you know that we just kind of talk all about our favorite stuff and blah, 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 blah. But mm-hmm. uh, Dream Warriors is about, it's been many years since Freddy Krueger's first victim, Nancy, came face-to-face with Freddy and his sadistic, evil ways. Now Nancy's all grown up. She's put her frightening nightmares behind her and is helping teens cope with their dreams. 
Two Bad Freddies decided to herald his return by invading the kids' dreams and scaring them into committing suicide. As always, not quite what this movie's about. There's a lot of other stuff going on for sure. But, um, boy, um, I'll start off by saying you can really feel the four screenwriters on this movie because this movie is a lot of movies. I, I don't know if you guys agree with me on that, but there's just a ton going on. Um, Justina, or you know what? If it's okay with you, Justina, I'm going to have Adam start us off on this one because I want to hear the the person who's brand new to the franchise. I want to hear what he thought of it, and then we can kind of uh, make fun of him for his opinion. Yeah, my opinion is a bad one, unfortunately. <laughs> no! Um, and I totally get the merits of what Justina's going to get into, and I'm just a monkey brain horror person. Um, but, yeah, I just... It's funny. It's cheesy. I had a good laugh. I was watching it in the daytime. Um, but, like, I don't know if I'd ever watch it again or any other in the series. I just, like, it doesn't quite get me. The only thing that really got me that I really enjoyed is when it goes full throttle and we have uh, Phillips' veins pop out of his arms and be played by a puppet. God. Yeah, it was hard to watch. But I love that. I love that stuff. You know, I love when they can show me something freaky. Um, but the rest of it is like plot wise, they're explaining stuff that I'm sure was brought up plenty in the first movie and probably the second one as well. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to speak for Justina, but I, I, you you gotta you gotta give the first one a try. You you have to as like a classic horror movie. Right. It's not this, and I liked what this was, but there's definitely a lot of different elements at play in this screenplay by three, you know, Bruce Wagner plus three very talented writers. <laughs> Um, and, and, uh, it's just, yeah, you need to give the first one a try, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about what we liked about this movie now. And Adam, you can hop in, uh, um, Justina, just as a basic, I, I think he actually just stole the moment from you there, but, uh, what would you say is your favorite kill from the movie? I guess now you can't say it's the part where the guy gets used as a puppeteer. You mean the character of Philip? Well, I can say it because I did talk about that on TV. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. 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 She wins. Go into go into what 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 actually you know you really enjoy about that. I mean, obviously, awesome effects, but mm-hmm. right. But something else that's very interesting is it sets the tone for the film because we're not really sure of. Uh, in the if you're new to this series, so if you watch the first one, uh, the second one, you know Nancy's not involved in it, but the third one it's now not just one person being terrorized it's a group of people so it take it brings freddy into a new realm of multiple people being impacted by him at once and what's interesting is that that's the first kill that we see on screen so it does set a morbid tone for what was to come in the film and yes there's a mix of hokey kills there's a mix of of more severe kills mm. but it just basically to me it kind of just uh, cuts you off at the pass uh, just automatically it it's one of those deaths that obviously uh, in terms of special effects it's very well done but what I did like is how everybody was helpless watching oh, I, I sound sadistic saying that but I guess about <laughs> horror it's 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 okay to say it but what I liked is the drama that builds up to the kill because it wasn't just somebody getting stabbed mm-hmm. it wasn't Freddie just making a a little a little comment here or there but it's the whole group witnessing this and watching it we never really had that kind of experience where everybody felt uh, so helpless in the second one of course Freddie does come into the real world and he says you all are my children and mm-hmm. he's going around 
cutting people and there's just this immense mayhem where everybody's running around like chickens without a head but with this one it, there's it, there's more of that you're trapped you don't have any place to go because at least at the pool party the kids could jump at the pool they could jump the fence and you know get the heck out of there but when it comes to this sanitarium they're stuck they mm -hmm. they can't leave and they're you just like rats in a cage watching their poor friend being you know taken against his will to the top of that building that tower and seeing what freddy could do and watching him fall to his death how helpless they were how isolated they were and that really amplifies uh, the fear of it it's not just the the special effects that are spooky but watching how everybody just was even though they didn't have uh, they weren't you know locked in their room they weren't uh, chained to their bed it was just how helpless they were yeah i i think that this movie is more now i'm trying to put my finger on it i think it's more fascinating than it is actually good uh letterbox gives it a 3.5 out of 5 which is very high for letterbox so there's obviously this movie has its fans uh i am definitely amongst them but i'm i think from like a more objective standpoint the the tonal shifts in the movie are what make it very interesting but i could see where adam is coming from being like that that does not equal a good film, and I understand that. But the one thing that will really kind of put me off in horror is when there's like – so this movie introduces – and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Freddy's not doing quippy one-liners in the first one, Adam. I, I think that maybe you liked the quippy one-liners in this movie, and you, you've probably – you've come to probably know Freddy as that because this movie really establishes him as what that – you know, bad jokes, and I know that's whole, your whole forte. But in the first movie, he's treated <laughs> – uh, purely as like a like a horror a brand new horror icon that is very scary um and this one i immediately settle into it being like you know of course my favorite kill is the uh the girl poor girl who wants to be an actress on tv jennifer gets murdered yeah she gets murdered by the tv and it's like ah uh, irony and uh but that's that you know i'll give it it's horror points the effects look really good on that it's funny when he says, welcome to primetime, bitch. Um, that's like a, obviously a classic line from the series. Um, but when It's the, the most popular. Is it really? You think it's mm -hmm. the most popular line? It's the most popular, yeah. That's all, Yeah, okay. Well, I love it. Obviously, I guess I'm just giving my basic opinion on this. But I think what really makes that scene interesting, again, tonally, is like we have this really horrific death mixed with like a laugh with that line and then larry fishburne who La lawrence fisherman is in this movie which i love and so is patricia arquette and all these awesome actors are in this movie but he you know he rushes into the room and uh it, we get like the horrific aftermath of like just her body like just hanging in the television and it's just it's it's really really it's really really creepy so i the movie feels like a a game of uh, what's that game called like tug of war yeah tug of war uh between like maybe if i had to assign like oh let's say let's just say that you know bruce wagner brings the goofy stuff to the movie right okay. yeah <laughs> adam takes after his father there and bruce <laughs> wagner is bringing the goofy stuff and you have wes craven like trying to you know, to be like no no this needs to be scary like the first one then you have darren bott and russell kind of in the middle bringing whatever else you know like the like, uh, Jessica, you mentioned the, the elements of multiple kids being stuck in this sanitarium. It just feels like literally three or four scripts got mashed together. And, again, I think that's what makes it fascinating. Uh, Adam, did you have a, a favorite kill or a favorite, like, moment that really thrilled you? Uh, it was absolutely Philip. Um, but, you know, what's, what's great is hearing Justina talk about this and 
um, kind of reminding me of when we all recorded uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, mm. is I love having sort of an opposite viewpoint than Justina mm-hmm. um, and then debating with her because she's right. Yeah, you know? it's, 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 always, it's always tough, right? And then you have me yeah. in the middle tr- trying to add a little bit of context, but it's like, you know, you, you say you don't like a movie that just, you know, literally gives a context of why it actually is an, an important yeah. and good film. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's really <laughs> enjoyable and it's nice to have it on this one. Um, but yeah, I think I, that's what I, I like. You know, I like scenes like that and I like scenes like the big Freddy worm eating Patricia Arquette. Um, oh. I, I, I like when it goes full throttle, like I said earlier. Um, and I think the, the, the da- more dour scenes are the ones that are sort of involving that other doctor most of the time, you know, doing whatever he needs to do. I don't care. Something to take into consideration, if I may interrupt for a second, is we start to see Freddy really cut those one-liners to make it a little bit more comical uh, yeah. in the second film. We start okay. to see We start to see more of that, and then it evolves into uh you know the third film but with the second one we start to see those lines we start to see him as a little bit more uh playful and teasing Mm -hmm. uh in the second film even though the second film does get uh dark but we see that evolution into the third one and of course the fourth the fifth uh but that's where for me it's it makes freddy more uh you relate more to him and I think in a way that can be terrifying for the audience, like you mentioned, Travel, the welcome to tr- uh, primetime bitch, which, by the way, I think he said that for me. Uh, <laughs> but, <Yes>. um, <laughs> but uh, you know, with this evolution of Freddy, it, at least in this film, I think having those one-liners makes him more terrifying because you relate to him more when it's just a straight bad guy. You know, you there's no relate you don't relate to it but when you can relate to a villain and why they're committing their acts in some way i whether it's them saying a line or their reasoning to why they're doing it uh like we saw with the movie maleficent where it kind of you know if you watch the original sleeping beauty it was she was just evil there was really no context to why and then in maleficent it explains you know how the the real what was it the king uh, betrayed her and all these horrific things that happened to her and thus she became a villain like the uh, even the musical Wicked they do the same thing with the Wicked Witch mm-hmm. of the West so with Freddy saying those one liners you know he he makes himself more relatable but at the same time you step back and go but this guy's a child killer you know I'm yeah. I'm creeped out because he is this bad person but at the same time he's kind of relatable so i think where you have the quirkiness it it does help but at the same time you you know you as the audience it's a roller coaster where you're like oh this is scary but oh that's funny you know kind of like gremlins you know when you see the old lady being launched out of her chair her (laughs) little uh you know that little chair that she has that goes up and down the the staircase it's funny because she's a horrible person but then you see uh, Dick Miller have the trailer, was it that tractor crash into his house? And yeah. you're like, oh, my God, that's that's creepy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, to this point, you would have, I mean, other horror uh, icons, even something like Reagan from The Exorcist. But the two big ones, I think, to this point are Michael Myers and, of course, Jason, who don't speak. 
I mean, they like that's very much part of their characters that they don't speak. So I think Freddy became so popular because he brought the intensity of those two. Plus, you know, he was dropping these one-liners and these quips, and I think people liked to go to these horror cons and dress up like Freddy, like you like you mentioned. Uh, that's always the kind of uh, juxtaposition or problem with like these horror cons and stuff is people are like running around as like this like guy that they love that's like a child killer right and like dropping these like one-liners and uh, I think like you say it humanizes him it also shows that he's just like having like I think it's like kind of disturbing in a way that he's having fun killing these kids you know what I mean yeah, like that, he's that, getting there's... a thrill out of it I mean yeah. him being a psychotic killer you know he's enjoying it I mean it's it's a, a power trip. It's something that he has over them because if you look at the lore of Nightmare on Elm Street, he was killed by their parents. Right. So he is getting his revenge and is happy about it that he is not only, you know, the parents are dying off, whether I think it was Nancy's mother died and then the father, of, of, I believe, mm-hmm. of alcoholism. And that's what they talked about in the film. And then her father is. Uh, uh, an alcoholic uh, mm-hmm. but you know he, he's probably getting a kick out of seeing the parents dying one by one yeah. uh, and because of guilt and then he's also getting a thrill out of killing kids because he did in the first place right yeah and, and we get the reveal in this movie that uh the all these children who were there are the kids of the parents who, you know, uh, burned him alive. And I think that's a cool revelation. Another revelation we get later that I think is very disturbing is when he takes his, like, uh, iconic uh, pinned sweater off, or, sorry, pinstripe sweater off, and he has all, like, the, the souls of the children he's killed that are, like, making him more powerful. That That's, like, super gross. Like, I'm, I'm just, I don't like that. It's, it's like, that, that stuff is, like, just so gross to me. Like, when he becomes, like, later in the series, like, a pizza and like the tongue stuff is always very gross to me. I mean, these movies yeah, you hate are... tongue stuff, huh, Trevor? <laughs> yeah, it's always gross. Ew, get it away. <laughs> now, um, and so and another thing that I was I think is like not out of place in this movie, but makes it interesting because it's a big reveal at the end. Um, again, there's like two reveals at the end, right? We're, we're just doing spoilers, by the way. I have people who have seen this movie can uh, listen to this podcast, I suppose. But if they haven't, then uh, maybe they just want to hear about it before watching it. Maybe they're too scared to watch it, and this will help them. But um, the like, I, like I, I'm going to keep harping on it that it feels like a bunch of different movies, and I'm not complaining. I think it's interesting, but like, there's the reveal at the end that the uh, the nun that we keep seeing throughout is like, oh, that was actually a ghost, and that was uh, Freddy Krueger's mom. And then like, you're like, oh wow, that was the big reveal. And then we go to another reveal at the very end with the little dollhouse or the house that uh, Patricia Arquette's character built, right? Uh, and then the light comes on, and you're like, oh, Freddy's still alive. It's like, it's just one thing after another after another. And so it's just, it's never boring. It's always exciting to watch. So um, I think this yeah, one's going to get, yeah. What's the deal with that? I mean, so they didn't kill him? What's going on? How does it come back in the next Well, movie? it's to leave it open for an, the possibility of another film. We saw that with Friday the 13th, We saw, you know, with Halloween, when right. uh, Michael Myers' body disappeared. So the whole idea was to leave it you know, open-ended, even with, uh, you go back to what's considered like the first holiday slasher, which is Black Christmas. That's the same concept as you, you realize that the killer wasn't caught. Spoiler. And you see the (laughs) dead body in the attic. And with these thrash, uh, these slashers, usually it's, they leave it open-ended that way, you know, the, the guy can come back. And we saw this happening. Uh, you can go further back to, uh, Frankenstein, you know, uh, because when Frank, when the 
if you look at the movie from 31, when the windmill collapses on him, you think the monster is dead, but then in Bride of Frankenstein, from 30, I believe it's 35, he's not dead. Yeah, in the, in the universe, um, how, how does that work? How is he I mean, still alive? This is the house that Freddy built, man. Where we, uh-huh. we just, we, we, logic, logic does get quite lost in this movie. Like, I was curious at a certain point. Like, I know Patricia Arquette has that very special ability to pull people into her dreams. But there was a moment where, like, they kind of just skipped past the how that was going to happen. And then they all ended up in the same dream. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, yeah, don't. It, Adam, this is not it, man. This is not the movie to talk about logic. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? This movie is, it can literally say, can drum anything up to dream logic. Right. Dream yeah, logic. That's what I was thinking. So, yeah, it's a, it's an, the old inception trick where you can kind of just do whatever think, you want. I think that idea hurts the movie just because, I mean, obviously they didn't kill him in the first one because he's right. still here. And obviously they weren't going to kill him here because I know there's a ton more movies. But the fact that they can say this is the only way to kill him and then it doesn't. Like I would have no faith in future movies that they can uh, succeed. (laughs) Well, this one has a really interesting like kind of out of left field. uh, It becomes like Army of Darkness for a little bit with that with like Freddy's bones. Mm -hmm. When um, the guy who uh, the actor who looks like a. God, who does he look like? Who does that actor look like to you, Adam? The, I, I'd never seen him in a movie before. So uh, the, the, the psychiatrist. The he, no, the dad is oh. John Saxon from uh, Black Christmas. Well, Justin yeah, was also about. from a movie that I also watched this week when I should have been watching this movie earlier, um, Enter the Dragon. <laughs> Enter the Dragon, absolutely, yeah. Um, by the way, Black Christmas is my favorite uh, horror movie. So when I see – so one of my favorite movies, period, but – John Saxon's in the first one, and then when he returned to this one, I saw his name in the credits, but I had forgotten by the time he showed up. Mm. So I was like, yes, John Saxon. And he's like this drunk at this bar who's obviously Nancy's dad. Um, and I thought he was only going to be in one scene, but not only – he goes to like the climax of the movie that we're cross-cutting between Freddy and the kids in the dream. And then uh, the, him and then the, the, that actor, uh, the psychiatrist or whatever, literally battling Freddy's bones in the graveyard. It's like so wild. And then he dies – and I was like, oh, my God, they killed off John Saxon. That's that's crazy. But, you know, he probably wanted out of the franchise. I get it. Right. And then they kill Nancy. They kill Heather mm-hmm. Langenkamp. And I was like, holy shit. This movie, like, really made some decisions. Like, to me, that feels like probably Craven's contribution is, like, the overall big story stuff. Like, we're going to kill Nancy and we're going to kill Nancy's dad. We're going to put that house on Elm Street to rest, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, what, what did you guys think of the climax of the movie where we get to learn everyone, uh, we, you know, we get to see everyone's powers come to fruition, the dream warriors do their thing? I just thought it was very fun, you know, 80s camp because we can see yeah. other, a lot of films coming out that time that were very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're very, as you mentioned, dream-like, mm-hmm. a dream uh Logic. I mean, mm-hmm. look at how many fantasy movies there were with films like uh, Lady Hawk. I love that movie. It's not really completely logical, but it's fun. You have mm-hmm. Lampyrinth, you have Dark Crystal, you have uh, just a slew of these films that have a heavy fantasy element to it. Even uh, movies like Terminator, it does have a fantasy element to it, even though it's supposed to be sci-fi. So it does uh, play into that decade, and I think it is uh, fun that they have this... Uh, segment on wish fulfillment because here you have these uh, kids that feel powerless all teenagers do or all people do to some extent but especially when you're younger you have a feeling of uh, that you want to be treated as an adult but you're still legally a child and so you have these individuals who again we're dealing with the same trope of nobody believes them that this is what's happening and 
at least, you know, the outside world, they have no control. But right. in their dreams, they can be what they want to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, a lot of ideas in this movie. Adam, you have to admit that. There's a lot going on in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that one kid got to live his dream of being Super Mario by the end of the movie. <laughs> Um, the no, the I, poor guy who gets killed, like the magic, who wants to, he's like the, what is he, like the warlock or the magician? The, the he master gets, wizard. He just gets fully murdered. I was like, oh, I, I forgot that like, like nice kids get killed in this movie, you know? Yeah, that that was, I, I did like that. I, I was telling the person I was watching it with um, when they were doing the final confrontation, like, why don't they all just become master wizards? And then Zach, <laughs> I think combined powers. Uh, I mean, no, I, there's a lot of charm in this movie for sure. I definitely didn't not like it if that makes sure. sense it's not mm-hmm. my cup of tea but i was like i enjoyed watching it my favorite moment in the entire movie is when they all get take, taken into the mirrors and then uh that one kid finally figures out that his dream power is that he can like talk joey just be, right. joey yeah. just can be really loud but the effect that all the mirrors break and they come tumbling back into the room i thought that looked really good i like, was yeah. like holy shit that's like a big that's a big stunt or whatever you know i i really dug that so yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, cool. we're just talking obtusely about the movie. Uh, we can wrap it up. Does anyone have any other favorite parts that they want to talk about or something? I, I you know, One part that I thought was made me laugh out loud was uh, how drunk John Saxon was at the bar. And then um, the psychiatrist is like, we need to go back to the to the uh, sanitarium or whatever. And it cuts to John Saxon driving. <laughs> he like he like he pulls up with the guy who's sober in that truck. I'm like, yo, he should have driven. Like that, that that part made me laugh out loud. Yeah, it was weird because also the, he he says like, what are we doing here? So they should have just made the other guy drive because he knew I where he's going. <laughs> um, I do have yeah. one little uh, Easter egg that I noticed. Mm-hmm. The first scene we get with the fantastic Lawrence Fishburne, he's handing out pills. Oh, he's two two different colors. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yes, we love what we love that. I think that's probably the Wachowski's probably watched that and probably based the entire lore of the Matrix off of it. I agree. They <laughs> loved Master Wizard, and they said, "How can we improve on this?" <laughs> Very good. They'll have Fishburne run around in a cape. <laughs> yeah. Put, put him some sunglasses on that guy. God, Patricia Arquette, she's very good in this, especially for her first film role, but she's just, like, screaming so much. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. She screams. And I love that her ability is that she can, like, do cartwheels. (laughs) What would would your guys' dream ability be? Um, I would, uh... (laughs) Give me a second. I'll I'll think about that. Yeah. Well, good good question. Justina? Hmm. There's a lot, I mean... I, I wouldn't want to be a wizard. That would probably be number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zero I, power. Huh, I guess being a... I, I guess this is a... Let's think. I It would probably be... I know this is going to sound very X-Men, but it would either be able to move things with my mind or to mind read. One of the two. Oh, okay, that's sweet. I'm into it. Um, I would, I would probably just... Um, uh, be like Sonic and just uh, gotta go fast. Okay, I think I would steal the tongue ability. Okay, of course you you only asked that question so you could say that answer. I didn't have any. I just genuinely feel that way, Trevor. Um, I to wrap it up here. I, I have another question that I I wanted to ask Justina because you you seem like you know all of the uh, horror icons, but 
out of the main, let's say that there's five or six main horror icons. Let's let's even narrow it down to slasher icons. Who would you say is your favorite out of that crop? Oh gosh, well I'm a big fan of Candyman. Nice. I do. I mean, Freddy, of course. So, I mean, Ash from Evil Dead, even though he's a good guy, you know, yeah. I would probably put. Uh, if we're just talking slashers, those would probably be my top three. Uh, Adam, it is so nice to not have to bog ourselves down in rating this movie with some weird <laughs> scale and just be able to just chat. It's scary boys, scary boys. Adam, out of the, the horror icons, who who really uh, scratches your itch? Hmm. Well, if I'm itchy, I'm going to go to Wolfman. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Freddy because he has the, the, the claws for hands. Because he has the style. You know, what's interesting is because I, I know a lot of these are sort of what parables for being against sex and trying to convince teens not to have sex. Yeah. Um, that the person I was watching with, she pointed out that that Freddy comes off very sexual in like pretty much everything he does. There's even a point where he's just mm. leaning against the wall and it feels very flirty even. Yeah, I mean that that's something that's something they do in the remake, right, Justina? Is they they make him a child molester, and it's like, well, we only hinted at this for ten movies. Why? Uh, you know, that was like mm-hmm. that was the problem with the remake because it was just so unsubtle. At least there were so many, it. there were so many problems. But yeah. again, if we if you want to talk about the uh, sexuality of Freddy, it would definitely be. It's very bold in the second one. That's very evident there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, g- give a give Adam a real a crash course about the second one real quick because I still haven't seen it, but I, I know what the big deal is with the second one. Well, the second one basically it's about he's tormenting a teenage boy, and it it takes basically what happened with. Uh, I'm trying to think of how's the best way to do this. Is it's basically you know how with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street the original one. It, you know, it was Nancy wasn't the original target, but she became the target. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a group of you know, it was a group of kids, one by one by one. But with this, it was just more so focused on one person. Right. You know, a game of like cat and mouse. That's my uh, interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. And it's, people it's, around it's also, him get yeah. killed. Yeah, it's uh the, the, to me the way you're describing it makes it seem like it's a metaphor for puberty, puberty or something. You know what I mean? Like Pub- for a puberty, pu- 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 puberty, puberty. <laughs> no, um, the, it's the second one as I know it is known as the gay one. Like it's very much uh the the LGBTQ community has really uh, uh co opted that one as like there's always like rainbow flags on the second one and stuff like that. I haven't seen it, so I don't know what they're talking about. But they've made well, like f- horror documentaries about it and stuff. Yeah, like there that. is. A sh- I think it's called Scream Queens, and it's on yes. Shutter, and they go in depth about that. Yeah, so that that would be uh, the, uh, Adam. If I had to recommend one to you, it would be the first one to watch again. But mm-hmm. I just finish out the trilogy, man. Just just watch the <laughs> second one and just yeah. tell me because they're I, they're all so distinctive in tone. They're just so interesting, and um, I would say this movie, this franchise of like Halloween versus Friday, this one's got to have the most range. I mean, there's probably the most going on in this franchise. Not to say the other ones get super repetitive, but they 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 get super repetitive. I mean. Uh, my my favorite slasher, since you guys asked, is um, Leatherface. I love Leatherface, and I'll tell you why. Spoilers for the Scream movies, but 
it's never the same person. It's always someone different, or sometimes it's two people. And I love that Leatherface can keep this iconography, even though it's not even the same person every movie. Uh, and it just becomes this weird death cult that that's like all linked together. And, um, you know, I love like the meta-ness of what's your favorite scary movie kind of, kind of takes, you know, Freddie's smart assery and mix it with Michael Myers, like straight up, like I'm going to, you know, stab you with a knife type stuff. So that would be my favorite. Uh, anyways, let's get out of here. Shall we? Uh, let's, let's, let's leave this dream. Uh, Justina, thank you. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to plug? I know we've been talking about the, uh, your, your prime time gig that you just got, but uh, <laughs> I, I know you have a new blog on the Freedom Cinema's website. Mm-hmm. And it's and it does involve uh, Eli Roth's history of horror. It's an extensive interview with uh, the showrunner of the show, Kurt Seinga. He was the one that actually brought me into the project. Yeah, it's it's a great interview. Uh, you guys can check that out. Go to thefreedocinema.org. And again, we'll we'll say it again. Check out it's uh, season three, right? Episode one. Episode one, the, the 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 Phantom Menace of the of the third season in Masters of Horror. Yeah, check that out to see Justina make her primetime debut, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Talking about this movie, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Adam, uh, thanks for trying. I know uh, we are pretending to be scary boys, scary boys who have seen all the horror movies, but uh, I think the gig on this season, if people haven't figured it out, is we're going to be talking about horror movies that we have not seen. And sometimes they're these big iconic ones, so... Um, thanks for trying and uh, bringing on a, an interesting perspective, but you failed once again, Val. Yeah, thank you, Justina, for being the scariest boy here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> you definitely, you definitely scared these boys. Uh, Adam, you have anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, check me out on Letterboxd, Adam with three M's, and uh, check out my website. <laughs> what? what? I don't, I, that, that's never made me laugh before, but that screen name sucks. <laughs> thank you. I made it a while ago also and then just revisited because of you um, and I couldn't change it. Uh, but my website is uh, www.adamjcwagner.com where I post the stuff I make. Absolutely. My plugs are at Trevor Dills on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me on Letterboxd, Captain Dills. And uh, always follow us, Ghost Party Picks on Instagram and Twitter to see updates about this dumb show that we do that, Justina, you are so... Um, so kind to come on and give your time to us to talk about this movie and I know we didn't even scratch the surface on this franchise Uh, and I I know that uh, we could talk to you a million times over about horror and Latin horror and international horror and all this amazing stuff but I'm going to reiterate before we get out of there you need to make your own podcast I want (laughs) to listen to it Mm -hmm. I'll see what I can do don't move to Elm Street bye (laughs) 